Rise and crime, everybody. I'm Rachel Souza. And I'm Michelle Chan. And we're back. For another week. Sorry we skipped yeah, sorry a week. Sorry we missed a week. Oh, that was, oh my gosh, we did that together. I love that. <laughs> um, There was really no excuse for it. We kind of just missed a week. I mean, we're both back in different cities. It's kind of difficult now. Yeah, so we're recording this over the phone. Oh, I remember yes. why. It's because, <laughs> funny story, last week I went home to Markham and Rachel came to Waterloo. I know, a little bit messy. <laughs> I literally am so scared of my stupid computer stopping recording because I have the oldest MacBook known to mankind and it doesn't even have like a voice recording thing. So I'm literally using QuickTime. Like, <laughs> the first world struggle is real. <laughs> Yes. Yes, it is. I just realized that my, what I'm doing for the, I guess we call the beginning segment, because I'm not doing fact or fiction. I mixed it up because we missed a week. Okay. Okay. So for my small case, not really, I decided to tell you the top 10 most haunted places in Canada. Okay. And tell you why they're haunted and stuff. I can hear myself on speaker. How is that possible? I have no idea, but we're just going to deal with it. All right. (laughs) Because I am not very technology inclined. (laughs) That's not even the right phrase. I'm, it's late. (laughs) The top 10 most haunted places in Canada. I'm getting it from a list uh, done by Reader's Digest Canada. So thank you, Reader's Digest, for curating this list for me. (laughs) So, taking slot number 10 is the Maritime Museum of British Columbia. It's in Victoria, to be exact. Oh my, I think I've been there. To this museum? Yeah. That's crazy. So, the, the it used to be the site of the city's jail. Whoa. Rumored to be haunted by a bearded figure that you can see when you look through the entrance windows of the museum. I did not try to do that. No. Well, if you did, you'd see him gliding down the staircase. I like to imagine it like he's, like, riding the handrail. Yeah. Like he's sitting on it. Yeah, and he's just, like, gliding down that way. Mm-hmm. Not, like, you know, ghost gliding. <laughs> Anyways, taking spot number nine, the West Point Lighthouse in O'Leary, Prince Edward Islands. The Shout what? out PEI, we've never said anything about you on this podcast before. <laughs> really? I don't think we have. Not even, like, a small case? Maybe. Like, I hope we have. We just neglect the Maritimes in general. Sorry, Maritimes. Sorry your crime rate's so low. Yeah, well, no, good for you. Keep it, <laughs> keep it that way. Or maybe it's, like, super high and we just are uneducated. Maybe. Could be. Possible. So, the lighthouse is said to be haunted by the lighthouse keeper, Willie. He was the very first one. And it seem And it's, like, la 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 words. Um... And yeah, it says you can see him messing with, like, the lights in the lighthouse and everything like that. Hmm. Taking slot number eight, the Plains of Abraham in Quebec City. So this is the spot of, like, a famous Canadian battle, one of the most famous ones in Canadian history. And it's said to be haunted by many ghostly soldiers that you can see at night. Oh. Taking slot number seven, I didn't even know that this place was haunted, but apparently the Hockey Hall of Fame is haunted because it used to be the site of the Bank of Montreal building. And apparently there is, this is a rumor, there was a lonely bank teller named Dorothy who was in love with the bank manager and then he was like, I'm not in love with you. And then apparently she took her own life and now she haunts the building. Wow, that sounds very dramatic. But it is just a rumor, not 
could not be true. Interesting. Uh, taking slot number six, the old spaghetti factory in Vancouver. Hmm. And it's said to be haunted by a ghost of a train conductor. It's just passing by. Yeah, well, it's because the, the spaghetti factory is built over the uh, railway track. Oh, I see. Yeah. So apparently he's haunting that, and you can see him around there. Taking slot number five, the Fairmont Chateau Laurier in Ottawa. I've stayed at this hotel. I've seen it. I stayed in it because I crashed, like, Allie and her friend's, like, weekend getaway because I was feeling sick and I was also in Ottawa. (laughs) So business tycoon Charles Melville Hayes commissioned the building of the building. The building of the building. That makes sense. Yeah, the building of the building. (laughs) The hotel was to open in 1912, like its grand opening, but uh, Charles Melville Hayes actually died on the Titanic just days before it was supposed to open. Oh. So it said because he never got to see it, his spirit haunts it. Oh, I've heard this when I was like in Ottawa in like grade eight and they gave us a tour of Ottawa. Like the haunted tour? (laughs) No, I think we just were driving by and then like they see buildings and like, oh, that one's haunted because the... the, the." This one seems legit though. That building's so old. Yeah. Taking slot number four, the Fairmont Banff Springs Hotel. I can never say Banff. Banff? The Banff. <laughs> it's my, my mouth just doesn't work that way. The Banff Springs Hotel in Banff, Alberta. <laughs> I've seen this hotel. I've been inside this hotel. I've not stayed there. You haven't stayed there? No. We, I forget what we were doing. <laughs> I think I was on a tour, like a going across Canada, and we stopped in Banff, but I forget where we stayed. Huh. Because that hotel is absolutely beautiful. I'm looking at a picture of it right now. Yes, I've been inside to use the bathroom. (laughs) That's hilarious. Yes. So it is said to be haunted by a bride who allegedly, this all just like rumors again, fell down the giant marble staircase and died. So it's it's said to be haunted by her and also uh, a bellman who worked at the hotel. Interesting. Taking slot number three, a true classic, the Keg Mansion in Toronto. Oh, yes, of course. Yes. um, It used to be uh, the residence of the Massey family, you know, like Massey Hall in Toronto. Mm -hmm. So they used to live there. And um, in 1915, the daughter of the Massey family, Lillian, took her own life. And it said that she haunts the Keg Mansion now. Oh, that's sad. Go to the Keg Mansion all the time. She said one time she was using the bathroom and she heard scratching, like, on the walls, but she was the only one in there. That's really freaky. The Keg Mansion, I have so many stories I've heard. Taking slot number two, the Craig Daroch Castle. Sorry if I'm saying that wrong. It's in Victoria. It, the rumors are that the piano inside the castle plays itself. Oh, I don't like that. That would, that's absolutely terrifying. Music playing by itself? No, get out, leave. <laughs> And wait, 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 can I guess? Sorry? Can I guess number one? Yes. Is it Casaloma? No. Oh. You think, you know? It's not even on the list. No, this that wasn't on the top ten. Interesting. According to Reader's Digest. Maybe Reader's Digest just overlooked Casaloma. Hmm. No. Taking the number one slot is the Tranquil Sanatorium in, in Kamloops, BC. Interesting. So it was a treatment center for people who suffered with tuberculosis. Hmm. Um, And also before that, it was a mental institution. I see. 
it's said to be haunted by so many people. <laughs> and there's even now they've built an escape room experience in there for the uh for people that want to be truly scared. <laughs> I'm surprised that McGill's not on this list. Oh yeah, the Mc- I've heard so many stories of McGill people uh seeing ghosts as well. Yeah. They're their own species, didn't you know? McGill's a country. <laughs> yeah. Quebec's it. No. <laughs> Just kidding. Quebec, please stay with us. We love you. Okay, so that was fun. That's the most haunted place in Canada, according to Reader's Digest. All right, so this case, I cannot really remember what happened, so it will be an experience for you and me. How long ago did you research this? Um, I think, like, maybe a week or two ago. Oh, wow, so you're ahead of the game. I have not even <laughs> thought about my next case yet. Yes. The other day, my mom was watching me do, like, research for the podcast. Mm-hmm. She wasn't, like, staring at me, but she, like, came across me doing it when I was at home. Mm-hmm. And she was like, you shouldn't be doing a podcast if you're doing research this last minute. I was like, I'm not recording for, like, three days. What do you mean? <laughs> She's like, do you even care? I was like, of course I care. Like, what do you mean? I mean, you don't have to be, like, a week prepared. Like, it's not like you, you're reading, like, an essay, you know? Like, you don't have to proofread it. Right? And she's like... You're being so irresponsible. And I was like, probably yes, but. (laughs) Okay, so are you ready? All right. I'm, again, not going to tell you the title. So spring of 1989, Chatham, New Brunswick. I think that's how you say it. I'm sorry if I butchered it. Yes. Just after we said we were neglecting the Maritimes. Yay, redemption. (laughs) Yes, the Maritimes. All right, Sunday, May 28th. Annie and Nina Flam, who were elderly sisters-in-law, and uh, they lived together in an adjoining duplex attached to a small grocery store that Annie ran for 50 years. So it's 11 p.m. and the neighbors see Annie locking up the store, and Nina is upstairs reading a book. Several hours later, a resident uh, walks the street and he sees a fire upstairs in their duplex. Yeah. And then within minutes, the firemen are rushed to the scene and they find Nina near the back door, really badly burned, but she's alive. Okay, that's good. Yeah, but Nina wasn't only just burnt, she was also beat up, like very severely, and she was rushed to the hospital. Oh, man. Yeah, so now everyone is looking for Anna, and it's clear that the fire is set to cover up the crime. So the police... The police are on the scene now that Nina is assaulted because now the police need to get involved. And there was burn patterns near the staircase suggesting arson. And upstairs, they could see a knee sticking out from the ceiling. A knee coming out of the ceiling? Yeah. Like bones of the knee coming out of the ceiling. Oh, no. Annie's dead in bed, and all that's left was the frame of the bed. Oh my gosh, that, no. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Nina is at the hospital, but she's recovering, and she begins to speak to the police. So wow. she said, yeah, that's good. Amazing. Wow. She said that the previous night, she was in bed, and she heard footsteps coming up the stairs, and someone came in and grabbed her, threw her on the bed, binds her hands and puts a knife to her neck and asks where they keep their money. 
And then he proceeds to ransack the place and sexually assault her and then physically assaults her. And then after all that, he tucks her into bed, then ties her to the bed, sets it on fire. Or not, not the bed. Sets, like, a place beside the bed on fire. And he walks out and closes the door. So Nina is just tied to this bed, watching this person set a fire and leave. That is absolutely the most horrible and terrifying thing ever. Yeah, so scary. And then, but she manages to untie herself and she goes downstairs and she collapses because obviously she's very injured. Okay, but she's a badass. She literally Mm -hmm. untied herself while there's a fire burning. Like, hi girl, good for you. But that is still the worst thing ever. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And what Annie's autopsy showed was that she went through the same thing and that she died in her sleep. At least it was in her sleep, you know? Yeah. Like, that's good, but still so upsetting. Still very upsetting. Horrible. So the police go door to door now. And Mm -hmm. back at the crime scene, police find hair and semen in the crime scene. DNA. DNA. Mm -hmm. But it's 1989, so... Oh, so Taylor was so Taylor Swift is born. Yeah, pretty much. So at the same time uh, of this occurrence, there's also two known criminals on the loose, and while there's no correlation to them, everyone thinks it's them. So everyone's really scared. But the two known like the two criminals are independent of each other. They don't like they don't do crimes together. So, so two separate mm-hmm. criminals. Oh. Yeah. So one of the criminals has killed before, and if it was if it was that person, that would mean that there's a serial killer on the loose. And the other known criminal was just someone who escaped a convict from a minimum security prison somewhere else in the province. And the one who has killed before is known as Alan Legere. And Alan So wait, so they're so they're sorry. Yeah. So these are both in New Brunswick, right? Yeah. Like, New Brunswick is not big. (laughs) If there's two, like, one serial killer and another criminal escaping from prison, like, they are close to everyone. Yeah. Kind of. Like, not super, but, like, still, yikes. Closer than if you were, like, in, I guess, Ontario, because land mass-wise, kind of different. So... Alan Legere, he was tied to a similar crime three years earlier. And let me tell you about that crime. So at the time, in 1986, in May, John and Marie Glendenning ran a small grocery store in the Miramichi region. So three individuals burst through their door and attacked them and then beat them to death. Shortly after, the police arrest the three men. That's good that they were caught. Yeah, like, immediately. Good. The ringleader was 38-year-old Alan Legere, who had a history of violent assaults and burglaries. He had a reputation amongst the criminal community and was really feared by many. Now it's January 1987, and Alan Legere and the two men were convicted of murder and sent to the Atlantic Institution in Renault. Okay, are you going to tell me how this guy somehow got out of jail? Because, like, he's a murderer. Listen... So, two years later, May 3rd, 1989, Alan Legere is shackled and escorted to a hospital for an ear infection. And when they got to the hospital, Alan went to the bathroom. 
well, he wanted to go to the bathroom. So a guard took him to the bathroom. And inside the stall, he undoes his restraints with a with a DIY key. And then he bursts into the hallway and waves his DIY knife around and sprints out of there into the parking lot. Oh, my God. Okay, yeah. first, that's the worst. Second, this guy's a DIY queen. Like, <laughs> to make your own key, like, And knife. Crafty. I feel like knife is easier than key. Knife, I feel like... I feel like that's that's a little easier to make your own key that actually unlocks something. Like this guy clearly was watching some YouTube tutorials. Like, <laughs> five minute crafts. Five minute crafts. That's what he was doing. Five minute crafts. But also so, that's the worst. At this time in the parking lot, Peggy Olive is getting into her car outside the hospital. And Alan takes her hostage by putting a knife to her neck. And he drives her car and heads to the city of Moncton. Yeah, she kept saying that she wouldn't go to the police if he would just let her go. And eventually he does let her go. Meanwhile, local police set up roadblocks everywhere, but he still manages to escape the city. Damn. Yeah. And at this point, they are still looking for him. This is like a Ted Bundy jumping out the window situation. (laughs) Yeah, really. And like cuts his hair and police are like who is he (laughs) type situation he parts it differently (laughs) without any proof so okay we're gonna go back to annie and nina okay so without the proof that the attack on them was connected to alan they followed other leads that led to dead ends obviously and they were hoping that new forensic science would help them with the dna in 1989 they're still constructing the building that would do this dna testing and the dna testing was called dna typing and it would just you know match i don't know the specifics of it so (laughs) maybe i shouldn't talk about that but it is just yay forensics is basically what we're saying yeah basically everyone that they interviewed from before they would ask for their dna so one day they could match potentially that's good police work yeah it is it's very thorough that is and also but like come on he escaped from jail like not too much earlier in the month of 1989 Mm -hmm. and then later in 1989 a similar crime occurs like hi kind of sus yes so at the end of june an escaped convict is captured and is not responsible for the attack like you remember how i said there was two so the other criminal yeah at this time donna and linda two sisters uh living in newcastle and they were known they were well known in the area you know as like two women living by themselves and friday october 13th donna is home alone and at some point after sunset a man goes into her backyard like, of course, it's Friday the 13th in I know. October. This is awful. Around 11 p.m., Linda comes home after having coffee with a friend. And she left her friend and said it was okay that she was going to walk the rest of the way home down her oh, dark no. street into the driveway. And a man comes up behind her and hits her straight in the face. No. So early the next morning, firemen come to the scene and they see two sisters upstairs beaten and burned. No. Mm-hmm. And it was clear that they had not died from the fire and that it was from the assault. Ugh. And it's, oh my god, the most chilling thing about this, on the door, you could see ten fingers, like, two, ten fingerprint of blood down the door. 
Okay, so then uh, some movie producer was like, hey, we're turning this into a movie. We're calling it Friday the 13th. Like, <laughs> yeah, Mark Twitchell. <laughs> oh my gosh, the worst. The worst. Yeah. That sounds like something that he would have done. Mm-hmm, 100%. If you don't know who that is, go listen to our previous episodes. But um, Plug. Oh my god, wait, was that a plug? Yeah, it was I a plug. that? Yes, you did. Did I just shamelessly promote us in our, <laughs> on our own podcast? That's helpful. <laughs> like, if you're listening to this, you've definitely listened before. We don't get any new subscribers. <laughs> I'm kidding. Okay. Tell your friends, though. Please. Um, okay, so the police find some pants that were inside out and some nylons with knots in them. The police... Sorry. The place looked ransacked like it was out of anger. And along with them being badly beaten, they were also sexually assaulted. So they collect the hair and the semen at the scene. This is so horrible. This is mm-hmm. just... Ugh. So, now, the residents are very concerned. So in a town meeting, um, one guy said that... Like, this is the state at which they were at. They, he said that if the the like uh, assailant arrived at his door, he'd shoot them and they can arrest him later, and that the guy, and then that guy who said that got a standing ovation from the crowd. Oh my, okay, you know it's bad when you're getting a standing ovation for gun violence. Yeah. In Canada. Like, bad, bad, not good. That is very bad. So, they were looking everywhere for Alan. There was helicopters everywhere, and then they canceled Halloween in Marimichi. Like... (laughs) (laughs) That's such a funny concept to cancel <laughs> Halloween. That's like how right now with coronavirus, shout out. No, I'm kidding. I hate coronavirus, obviously. But that's like how they moved they moved the celebration of Chinese New Year. They're like, we'll do it later mm-hmm. because of coronavirus. It's like not similar, but also the same thing. Yeah, but not good. Anyways. And at this time, the forensic tool is now available. Yay! So, Yay, forensics! So they send the hair and the semen samples to the building. By early November, they confirm that the attacker is Alan Legere. So, like, we've been <laughs> new, but now they got the evidence. Now it's solid. Before police go public, Father James Smith, a pastor uh, who was hosting a mass on November 16, is scheduled for 7 p.m., Right. And the congression is waiting for him, and he's known for his punctuality. But now it's 7.15, and two people walk over to the kitchen, and they see that there's blood everywhere. No. Yeah. And in minutes, the police show up, and in his office, that's where he lies dead. A pastor? Like, no. Mm-hmm. He All had, of these are no. He had broken ribs on both sides, indicating that someone was jumping on his body to break the ribs. Ugh. Yeah. And the culprit had walked through the house with, the, with bloody footprints. And within hours, they find Father Smith's car, and they find a pair of work boots that match the footprint nearby. So everyone is now completely panicked, and Alan basically became the boogeyman. Well, yeah, he's literally, and I literally hate 
more than anything hearing about these random attacks it's just yeah it's awful spikes my anxiety spikes everyone's anxiety it's just like planned attacks are horrible but like random attacks are just like especially it's awful. so terrifying parents would tell their kids if they didn't go to bed that alan legere would come and get them like he's a myth but real which is even like, scarier terrifying like mm-hmm. it could literally be anyone and these people have done nothing not that anybody who's been murdered has done anything to deserve it but it's just oh the randomness mm-hmm. is terrifying and also being female and like knowing at some point you're probably going to live alone you know it's just like yeah it's very terrifying horrible and this is now the largest manhunt in canadian history wow mm-hmm. they stationed the police officers everywhere the police uh, suspect that he had left the area and they thought that he would come back to watch himself on the news and, and this is still new brunswick right yes one week after the attack on Father Smith, November 23rd, Ron Compk is driving his taxi in St. John and he sees a man flagging him down. The man opens the door and he said that he missed his train and wanted him to take him to Moncton. And where, sorry? Moncton. Okay, right. Yeah. And while they talked about the trip, like normal, he then starts threatening him with a rifle and demands demands that he take him to Moncton, even though he was already doing that. He was just like a whole ass rifle. Yeah, like a whole rifle. Oh my gosh, this is just the worst. I know it's absolutely terrible. And while they leave town, Ron considers intentionally crashing his car. Um, but on the highway, there's really icy conditions, so he struggles with the wheel, and they end up in a ditch. So he crashes anyways. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. And then Alan, or, sorry, <laughs> I gave it away. The man said that he was going to kill him if he screwed up his plans. Then he, the man flags down another car, driven by Michelle Mercer, who is an off-duty RCMP officer. Oh, you flagged down the wrong car. And while keeping Ron hostage, he orders Michelle to carry uh, carry on driving to Moncton, but her car is low on gas. So while Alan pumps the gas, they're sitting in the car. Michelle makes eye contact with Ron and says that she has a spare set of keys in her purse and asks if he wants to go for it. And when Alan's done pumping gas he goes inside to pay for it and michelle uses the spare keys and books it out of there good for her yes is yes i love amazing and while ron and michelle down the wrong car while ron and michelle stop down the road and they call the police alan hijacks a truck and the truck driver at the gas station and no this guy oh he's determined determined to get to where he needs to go and the police were ready for this truck at this point and they circle it the driver of the truck was able to escape and alan gives up his weapons and is now subdued by the police oh hell yeah yes alan was so unrecognizable he had lost 40 pounds while hiding in the woods for a couple months they found a camp after he was captured up in the trees oh my god god so he <laughs> yeah literally went full wilderness he was like full survivor world. yeah 
So now he's in custody, the police assemble the evidence to prove his recent crimes, even though he is sure to go back for his previous ones. And this oh, case, true. in this case, Canada decides if DNA is as acceptable as fingerprint. And August 27, 1991, Allen's trial begins. He's held outside of the Miramichi region. And uh, because picking... Like, he had to be held outside the region because picking in an unbiased juror was going to be an issue within the region. Mm. The prosecution starts with the circumstantial evidence against Father Smith. Then they compared his feet to the imprint inside the boot. And they explained how no two people have the same DNA profile. And his DNA is identical to the ones found at both crime scenes. And as the trial moves on, Nina takes the stand, and her speech was incredibly moving. And meanwhile, Alan shows absolutely no remorse, as a psychopath because does. Because he's the worst. Mm-hmm. Two November... Things. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Two things. It must be incredibly weird to be one of the first juries to, like, f- be faced with DNA. Yeah. Because, like, must you've be just strange. never heard of this, and then suddenly you're like, oh, by the way, we can tell you... Like, you're being, like, taught things that, like, you're left up to believe whether science is that far or not. Like, it's kind of weird. Yeah, it is strange about. that you're the judge of it. Yeah, and that's such a weird thing. Like, you have to accept DNA for it to be, like, a thing. Like, it's so mm-hmm. weird to think about that that's so engraved in our brains that it's just, oh, yeah, obviously DNA. But these people are like, <laughs> what is this? That's true. And second um, thing, people who are like anybody who takes the stand and like is able to tell their story in front of a whole court like you go girl and or guy whoever does it but like nina you go girl (laughs) amazing uh november 3rd 1991 after deliberating for 13 hours the jury comes back and they convict him for everything and he sentenced 13 hours yes i would just be like i guess they had to figure out dna I mean, if I were to take a bio class, it would take me more than 13 hours to figure it out. So, I mean, I get it. He's sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years. And this is the first time in Canadian history that someone was convicted solely on DNA evidence. Love that. Yes. And that's the and story. many more to come. Of the monster of Miramichi. Wow. That is absolutely horrible. Mm-hmm. You did a good job telling it, though. Very Thank good. Thank you. My sources are what? in the link. Okay. I need to get on that, LOL. <laughs> but yes. literally, that is terrifying and so horrible. Transition out. Awkward transition. Um, <laughs> give me a quick high and low. Real quick. Uh, oh, um, high, not exams yet. Low, about to be real soon. Oh, dang. Um, my high is in my production class, the film that me and Julia wrote just got greenlit to be made. Nice. Which is really exciting. And my low is that I am, like, hardcore fighting with my roommates. (laughs) Not (laughs) No, unfortunate. I don't know if I should be saying that out here. I feel like they won't listen, question mark. Probably. Well, I'm only fighting with one of them, but it's real bad. Okay. Anyways, that's my high and low. So remember, if you're eating at the Keg Mansion, be nice to your ghostess. I mean, hostess. <laughs> that's a good one. Thank you. And don't forget to brush up on your DIY skills, because you never know when they may come in handy. 
Or don't if they're <laughs> making a knife. But the key's so useful. You know how many times you forget your keys? Yes. You know how many times I've locked my keys in my car? Too many. Anyways, <laughs> peace and love. Goodbye.